We're going to be in 1 John. We're going to start in chapter 1, but really that's just a catch-up. Uh, it's, it's a two-page catch-up. But uh, then we're going to move on into 1 John chapter 2. You, you could turn to it. I have the King James Version that's going to be on the screen. Um, you know, the Bible tells us that mankind has a problem. And a lot of people don't believe that, but the problem is sin. And while people want to blame God for a lot that's wrong with the world, the, the truth is sin is the thing that actually causes us the most trouble here on this earth. Uh, much of what is wrong with our world finds its origin in our own fallen natures. Uh, many of the difficulties that you face on the job and at home have to do with sin. Not, not God or not... not uh, just the way things work out, it's often related directly back to sin. Sickness, crime, war, accidents, racism, sexual exploitation, the list is endless and goes on and on, and I'm not going to do it, but even death, when you get down to the bottom line, death is a result of sin. And you could, you could get into theology and talk about what would happen if we didn't die. Death is actually a release from this cursed, sin-cursed body that we live in. Sin is the reason we can't love one another as we should. And sin is the reason we can't seem to rise above our own nature and find victory in this life. Sin is our obstacle. Sin is our enemy and sin is in us. But when sin is contrasted to the holiness of God, sin becomes an even bigger problem in our lives because God is absolutely holy. And that's the subject of chapter 1. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Sin renders us totally incompatible with God. It's a sad truth. And as we are engulfed in sin, we are also offensive in our presence, just standing here to everything that God is. We cannot tolerate being in His presence, and He cannot tolerate being in ours in our present sinful condition. Now, this is a problem if we hope to go to heaven one day because we're not going to be happy in heaven as sinners and He's not going to allow us there. God can't stand us as we are, sin-cursed. And we certainly couldn't stand to be anywhere near Him. We would, we would revile, revive in fear and terror at the sight of Him. There's no amount of cleansing ourselves or self-improvement that would render us acceptable to God. But God has a solution to our sin problem. And that solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this plan was set in motion before the creation of the world. Your name was written down in God's book before he formed the universe. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God has a plan. In Christ, God bridged the gap between this holy God and our sinful world. In Christ, he did this by taking his sins upon himself. And I always like to share this verse, a favorite of mine, for he... God the Father made Him Jesus Christ. For He hath made Him, made Christ, to be sin for us. He took our sin. The, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God took our sin and put it on the Lord Jesus Christ and took His righteousness and put it on us when we find ourselves in Christ. The solution 
to sin is Jesus Christ. But it is necessary that we see ourselves as sinners first and confront that sin, repent and confess that sin, and call on Christ to be our Savior. Repentance and faith are the two requirements for salvation, without which there's nothing we can do about our sin, as the way the Bible teaches. Now, 1 John deals a lot with how we deal with the sin problem. And in chapter 1, where we went over last week, uh, and honestly, I probably should have stopped at this point. I went too far, and I apologize for that. But John introduces us to four church people, four Southern Baptists, if you will. And these four Southern Baptists represent all of us in the church. And the question is, which one are you? He introduces us to the hypocrite. And the hypocrite is the guy that says he's in fellowship with God. But he continues to walk in darkness. His life is still filled with sin. He's not doing the truth, John says. And he is convincing no one. He wants to believe that he's living a good life. Like my uncle that said, oh, Bobby, I'm all right. I've lived a good life. And I think, really? You know, his life is a lie. The person who thinks he's walking in the light, but is walking in darkness, is living a lie. There's also the second guy, which is in verse 8, and that's the fool. If we say we have no sin singular, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This fellow denies the sin principle in his life. He is self-deceived. I'm okay, he says. I'm doing all right. I don't need Jesus. I don't have a problem. I've lived a good life. This man is self-deceived. The third type of guy we meet is a blasphemer. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The uniform teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament is that we are all sinners. Mankind has fallen into sin and needs redemption. This goes from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, the consistent story of the Scriptures. And of course, one of the favorite of most Christians is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This word sin that Paul uses here pictures an archer firing an arrow at a target and the arrow falls short of the target. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. However well you did in living your life, however much good you've done, you have sinned and because of sin you've fallen short. That's the message of the Bible. The blasphemer denies his own individual acts of sin. And that person either has no comprehension whatsoever of what the scriptures say, or he's deliberately calling God a liar. I remember talking to a teacher one time, and I said, it's, it's a pity that she's, she was of Jewish origin. And I said, it's a pity that you don't have a temple anymore. And she said, why? And I said, well, you have no way to... Uh, make an offering for your sins. And her response to me was, oh, we don't believe in sin anymore. And I think, really? A Jew that doesn't believe in sin. Anyway, the, uh, the next person we meet, the fourth is a true believer. The true believer walks with God daily, walking through life under God's guidance, aware of his failings and continually confessing whenever he fails. He's not hoping to do enough good to get into heaven as my uncle was hoping. Instead, he is trusting the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross to reconcile him to a holy God. He's put his faith in Christ. All right. He is daily seeking cleansing for his failures. And in so doing, he has discovered God's forgiveness and cleansing in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's chapter one. In a nutshell. 
And then chapter 2 begins. John writing as an older man, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now the verb tense here, and not to get belabored in that again, but the verb tense here indicates individual point in time Individual commitments of sins, individual sins. I'm writing unto you in order that you not commit individual acts of sin. The promise of forgiveness in the blood of Christ is no excuse for any of us who are believers to keep on sinning. Though Christ, we can find victory over these individual acts. And these things that keep tripping us up can be overcome. That's the promise. My children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. Jesus said the same thing when he healed someone. He said to these people, whenever he healed someone or forgave them of something, he would say to them, go and sin no more. So we have to believe somehow it's possible that even I could find victory over the problems that I face, whether it's my swearing or my stealing or my lying or the cheating or all the other terrible things I've done in my life. I can find power in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to go and sin no more. There's power there if we can find a way to avail ourselves of it. We can, and oftentimes we do, find victory over individual acts of sin. That's the important message of chapter 2. Now, in a parenthesis... Even the most successful Christians I have ever known will confess that they still struggle with sin. One of my professors in, in uh, the second seminary I went to, uh, Dr. Culpepper, one time referenced that. He was in his mid-80s when he said that to a class of about 40 seminarians, all of us young men. And he mentioned the fact of how he struggled with sin daily. And one of the young men, David Shepard, in his typical foot-in-the-mouth approach to seminary, stood up and he said, Dr. Culpepper, how can you possibly have a problem with sin? And Dr. Culpepper stopped his lecture and he said, why, what do you mean, Mr. Shepherd?" And he said, you're too old to sin. <laughs> and Dr. Culpepper laughed. He was a missionary in China in the Revolution. He spent time in prisoner of war camps there. His daughter, his newborn daughter, Grace, died in China, and he came back to the United States almost as a broken man with his family and began teaching in the seminaries. And you'd think, how could he have a problem with sin? The guy's, the guy's a living embodiment of a saint. And he said, well, you're right, Mr. Shepherd. I, I don't struggle with the same kind of sins you struggle with, but I still struggle with my mind. I still have to watch my mind. I still struggle with pride. I still struggle with arrogance. I still struggle just like you struggle. And I thought, wow, the battle isn't going to be won until we're with Jesus. So if you find yourself sinning, do not be surprised. But that is not our goal. Our goal is to find victory over the sins. Now, the reminder in this is when we do sin, when we do find ourselves falling into sin. Oh, didn't I type that well? Uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. When we sin, our normal response is to hide, to cover it up, to lie about it or deny it. But with God, you know nothing is hidden. There's nothing hidden, Jesus said, that will not be revealed publicly. He sees everything, and he knows everything. There's no sense in trying to cover up our sin. He knows my sin even before I commit it. He knows what I'm going to do wrong tomorrow. There's nothing you can do that will catch him by surprise to where he'll go, oh my. He won't do that. 
Now that's the bad news, and in a way it's the good news, but it's the bad news. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. But the good news is that we have legal representation before the throne of God. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's our attorney. The Greek word there is parakletos. Para means alongside and kletos means called. He is the one called alongside. So when we're called before the tribunal of God to answer for this mistake that I made yesterday, Jesus Christ comes alongside of me as my paraclete, my parakletos, and standing alongside of me, he says to the Father, Father, he is mine, and my blood was shed for him. We have an advocate, an attorney, a defense attorney, if you will, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But we have to call on him. We have to seek forgiveness. We have to ask him to forgive us and to represent us. We have to go to our lawyer. And he, I didn't get you there, did I? Let me get you there. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He, he is, is the actual way to read the Greek. It's, it's an emphatic pronoun. He himself Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a word you don't hear much in the Bible. It's only used three times. John uses it twice, and Paul uses it one time. It's not common in our language either, even in the Bible. The Greeks had the idea, however, that their gods, and spell that with a little g, that their gods were angry at them all the time. Well, that works for the big God, too, you know. But they had the idea that their gods were angry, so they had to somehow find a way to appease the anger of God. And that word that, that, that we would use to appease or to ease his anger at us is the word propitiate. Propitiate. Propitiation is their ancient word for appeasement. Hopefully, gaining God's favor, or at, at least, or at worst, uh, at worst, uh, maybe he won't be so angry at us anymore. That's the, the Greek idea of the world. Jesus is the, the one that appeases the anger of God for our sins. And he is our propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. It's a good word for us, even though our God isn't like their God's. It's a good word for us because the fact is we do owe a debt. The wages of sin is death. And sin calls for a payment of death. The soul that sinneth in the Old Testament, it is written, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. But, interesting to take the word but and go through every but in the Bible, if you do sometime, but the gift of God. You know, what you earn through your sin is a death sentence. But the gift of God, the unmerited favor of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23. Back in 1 John. So how do we know that we've truly been saved? That's the question today. And, and, and if we are truly saved, but we keep sinning, how do we find victory over sin? How is that done practically? How do we get to a point where we can have confidence in our salvation and not fear that every time we fall into some sin that we've somehow lost our salvation. And hereby, do we know that we know Him? How do you know that you know Him? I remember as a new Christian, people would say, 
Do you know that you're saved? And I would say, I hope so. And, and my pastor would say, but do you know that you know? And I thought, that's a stupid sentence. I didn't realize it was biblical. <laughs> Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And I have to tell you, I skipped one of the hardest parts when I read the phrase, and he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the halos cosmos, the whole world, because all of theology is divided into two camps on that verse. Now the rest of the world of Christianity is divided on these words. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You know my grandmother, Nellie Henley. I can't remember her maiden name. Hmm. Nellie, my grandmother Nellie, was a Christadelphian. They're still around. In her Bible, I, I received it after she died, and I'd become a Christian, and nobody in my family wanted a nasty old Bible sitting around, so they gave it to me. In her Bible, I found a, a list of the Ten Commandments of Christ. I didn't know there was such a thing. They had the Ten Commandments of Christ. And she and her, her little Bible group were not only convinced that Hitler was the Antichrist and that they were living through the tribulation, they were convinced that there were Ten Commandments of Christ that they had to keep. And they had that listed out, and I couldn't find it, so I Googled it to see Christadelphian Ten Commandments of Christ. And unfortunately, the Christadelphians have advanced since then. Now they have a hundred commandments of Christ. You know, covering, th I thought, well, maybe it's, 13, it's 10 categories. No, it covers 13 categories of the laws of Christ. Well, in the process of doing that, I ran into an Australian group that call themselves the Christian Assemblies International, and they are a split from the General Council of the Assemblies of God. Theologically, I don't think they're connected at all to the Assemblies of God that we have around here, but I don't know that. Now, there are 1,050 commands in the New Testament. This is from their website. I'm reading directly from the, the explanation, page one of their website. There are 1,050 commands in the New Testament for Christians to obey. This, this they call Christianity. Due to repetitions, we can classify them under about 800 headings. You know, in, in the movie, The Chosen, later on when we get into it, the, the boys are going to sit around the fire and complain that there are 251 rules a Jew had to keep. And I thought, oh, that's horrible. But these guys, these guys go the extra mile, I mean to tell you. Well, they're under 800 headings. They cover every phase of a man's life in, the, in his relationship to God and his fellow men, and now and hereafter. Now, this was the last sentence before they started the list. I'm going to put part of the list up. If obeyed, they will bring rich rewards here and forever. And if disobeyed, they will bring condemnation and eternal punishment. Now, I hope you hear what they're saying. Their salvation is based on their ability to keep these rules. All right. That's what they're saying. This is page one. That's actually not even all of page one because I couldn't get it to fit. You can see the categories, seven, seven abstains, seven things to avoid, three asks, 74 Bs, and it just goes on for 12 or 14 pages. I didn't want to have you have to read it all. How does it read up there? Oh, you can read it, yeah. yeah and there's a, there's a Bible restaurant for all of it. You know, I don't know about you, but this would make me go crazy. Clearly, if we were to start down that road, we would get lost somewhere in legalism and never find our way back out. Uh, 
But how do you keep the commands of Christ if you don't know what they are? It's a good question. And it really is a reasonable thing to take your Bible and sit down and write down everything that the Bible tells you to do and then try to do it. It's reasonable. doesn't work. It's a mistake, but it's reasonable to attempt it. It really is. And that's what these guys did. 1,050 different instructions on 12 pages of fine print on their internet. You can look them up, uh, the Christian Assemblies International, and look up their 1,050 commandments of Christ. Uh, but more importantly, as reasonable as it might be, and I did the same thing as a new Christian, I became a new Christian, I got all enthusiastic about following Christ, and I started to make a list of all the things I wasn't going to do anymore. My list was not 1,050 long, but I had a list, and I wasn't going to cuss anymore, and I wasn't going to steal, and I wasn't going to lose my temper, and I wasn't going to this, and I wasn't going to do that, and by the time I got halfway through the first day, I'd lost my temper and cussed about it, you know, and I couldn't figure out what was going wrong. You know, and it, it, it was good for me to read the New Testament because when Paul tried it, it didn't work for him either. For that which I would do when I made my own list, I allowed not. For what I would, the things I wanted to do, that I found myself not able to do. But what I ended up hating, I ended up doing. So I made this list for myself and tried to do it, but it didn't work because the more I tried to do it, the more I failed at it, he said. Now, you need to read all of Romans chapter 7, and I'm giving you just a very brief view of it. He got down to the point where he realized that the harder he tried, the worse it got. And that spoke volumes to me. And he said at the end, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And the body of this death is an ancient way to execute criminals. If you'd murdered somebody, they would chain the corpse, the decomposing corpse of the person you murdered on you, and you had to drag them around, and it was called the body of this death. And it pictures a convicted criminal dragging around the person that he murdered as that dead body decomposed on him. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, pictures a Christian dragging around his old nature, decaying as he goes. And it's a beautiful word picture of what it's like to be saved, but stuck in a lost body. And our bodies are lost and will always be drawn into sin. That's why we have to die. That's why we have to get a new body. And when we get a new body, we'll no longer be dragging this old dead body around. But as you keep reading through Romans chapter 7, and I recommend it, uh, he gets down to the end of it and he says, and I, I remember as a brand new Christian, I read that verse so many times trying to look for the answer. I knew the answer was there, but I couldn't see the answer and it never made sense to me, but the answer is there. It's just so easy you don't see it. The secret to success over sin is not found in listing every New Testament rule or in making any lists at all. The secret to success in the New Testament is to quit trying. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I set my mind. Paul said, I just put my mind on trying to follow Jesus. I'm just going to put my mind on trying to follow Jesus. and I'm going to stop trying to control this body of mine because I can't. The more I try to control it, the worse it gets. The more I try to stop sin, he says in chapter 7, sin revives and I die. The more I try not to cuss, the more I end up cussing. The more I try not to tell a lie, the more I end up lying about it. 
That's what Paul said. So I'm going to stop trying all these things. And I'm just going to focus my mind on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, what do you want me to do today? Where are we going? What are you going to do? I'm surrendering to you. The secret is setting our minds on serving and walking with Christ. That's the secret to victory. Put your mind on Christ and get it off these earthly things. Understanding that our flesh will resist every step of the way. And our flesh will never want to cooperate to what God's doing in our lives. You just have to step out in faith and believe God's going to take charge of it. Lord, I can't do that because I'm afraid. And he says, don't be afraid. Step out in faith. Lord, I'm worried about this. What will I say? What will I do? Don't worry about it. Take no thought for tomorrow, Jesus said. Don't put your mind on those things. Take your mind on those things. Put your mind on God and do what God has called you to do and he'll take care of the rest. It's always after you step out in the abyss. It's always after you make that first step that God begins to move. It's always late. It's never early. All right. It's always at the last possible minute. Jennifer said when she, just before she got her job, it was the weekend before she got her job, she said, I'm going to have to get a job soon because I'm at my wit's end. And I, I, I remember in my cynical way thinking to myself, I did not say this to her, but I remember thinking, yeah, you haven't even, don't even know where your wit's end is. Your wits go a long way, you know. You don't know how far he's going to take you down before he lifts you up. But she was right. She was at her wit's end, and he actually got her a job, and praise the Lord for that. There's times I thought it might wit's end and he would take that wit and stretch it a little further, you know. He just... Anyhow, back, back, uh, back to John. But whosoever keeps his word, keeps his word, keeps his word. In him verily is the love of God perfected, brought to completion or maturity. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to so walk, even as he walked. What you're looking for in your life is not a list of things that you follow to do in order to make yourself pleasing to God or a better Christian. What you're looking for is the directions of God in our life personally to our heart. It isn't other Christians don't smoke, so I have to quit smoking. It is what is God directing you to do today? It isn't Christians look a certain way, I have to dress that way. The issue is, what is the Holy Spirit teaching you to do or leading you to do today? And my experience has taught me that although I could come up with a list of things that need to be done, I could not come up with the power to do them. But if I wait on His timing in my life, regardless of how ridiculous I might look to others, if I wait on His timing and His direction, when the time comes and He says, now it is time to do this or this or that, He can provide the power in my life to do just that. So it's a personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a learning to hear His voice in your life, and it's trusting that voice. You get up in the morning, thank you for this day. What are we going to do today? What are we going to get into today? And the list He has for you will be different than the list He had for me. And He'll work in areas of your life that He won't work in mine. And I'm convinced when I die, I will still die a sinner. But I'll die a sinner that's forgiven. And he will have dealt with a lot of things. I, I've often told the story that when I was saved, he cured me of a number of things instantly. Instantly. And I, I just, it, it was over. Things that I used to do, that was over. But he left me with other things that I've struggled with. And some he's dealt with through the years. And some I still struggle with. He intends that to be. He wants us to walk in faith. 
Listen for his voice in your soul and learn to differentiate that from Satan's. And I will tell you that in the beginning, they sound alike. Don't be surprised. But Jesus's voice comes with the power to do what he wants you to do. Satan's voice comes with guilt. So if you feel guilty, don't do it. And just say, Lord, if this is you, make me to know it. I remember Catherine Marshall used to say that. If you're not sure, don't move because God will not stop leading you. He's not going to change his plan. So if he comes to you today and you think, yeah, that might not be him, it'll come back stronger tomorrow and the next day and the next day until two things will happen. You will be convinced that it is God's will in your life. And secondly, you will actually want to do it. God will change. I had an old preacher who used to say, he'll change your wanter to her. Now I want to do it. In fact, if you wait too long, you can't wait. And then you start praying, God, please hurry up. I'm tired of waiting. You know, and he'll be saying, not yet. You're not ready yet. Not yet. You're not ready yet. Jesus wraps it up for us. Uh, John, of course, wrote this, but he learned from the master. Jesus was talking about what it's like to be a Christian, what it's like to follow him. And he said in John chapter 15 and verse 4, abide in me. Now, the word abide means to remain. When I first read that as a new Christian, I came up with five different things I needed to do to abide. And I'm sure I got that from a sermon somewhere. You know, it's kind of silly. Why would you have to do something to stay where you're at? The word abide means remain. You're where I want you, Jesus said to these disciples. Remain where you're at. Abide. Stay where you're at. Think about where they were at. They were in a little circle, and they didn't even go out to eat until Jesus sent them out to buy food. They didn't go anywhere without Jesus giving some instructions. Think about what their life was like as they followed him around. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. You can step out of the circle of abiding out on your own, and you can make a list of things to do, and some of those things will make you look good, but there'll be no spiritual fruit from it because you can't bear fruit unless you're abiding in the vine. Fruit comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something He's doing. You may come up with some flesh fruit, but you won't come up with any spirit fruit unless you're abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the vine. You are the branches. It's very important to realize who you are. I remember sitting out under a tree one day, and I was struggling with this. I struggled with these issues a long time. And I was struggling with this and the Holy Spirit said to me, look up, and there was an apple tree to my left there in the backyard at our house. And he said, look at that apple tree. What is that branch worried about? Is he worried about that apple hanging on it? And I thought, no, he's actually probably complaining about the weight of the apple. What he's worried about is drawing sap from the root. That's all the branch cares about. Doesn't care about the fruit, cares about the branch. See, I am the vine, ye are the branches. I'm the root, you are the branch. I'm the trunk of the tree, you are the branch. I mean, he's talking about uh, grapes. He's not talking about apple trees. I'm talking about trees. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then this phrase that spoke volumes to me 30 years ago, for without me, and the word means apart from or separated from me or on your own, all right? On your own. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For separated from me, you can do nothing. You see that? That's the uniform message of the New Testament. 
Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And it's talking about abiding. It's not talking about writing down a list of do's and don'ts. It's talking about following his leadership on it. I want to say moment by moment, but I don't listen to that consistently. It's more like a day-to-day basis. You know, it's walking with him every step of your way and trusting, listening for his voice. And you got to learn to do that. You got to learn to hear his voice. You know, you find yourself doing some stupid things in the process of learning to listen to his voice, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And just know that with Christ's word comes power and with Satan's word comes guilt. Let's pray. Father, I know these are difficult sermons and I know that these are difficult lessons and I pray, Father, that you would make them real to us. Father, we live in a a nation of professed Christians that's literally imploding on itself in chaos and sin. What we need more than anything in our world right now are powerful, spirit-filled believers. And I pray, Father, you would bring a revival to our country. In Jesus' name, amen.